Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracon. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who was accused of murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a myriad of alleged crimes, including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we reviewed the testimony of one of the defendant's cousins, a law enforcement officer who also built guns for him. In this installment, we begin our look at the testimony of the SLED digital device expert who examined the victims and the defendant's cell phones. That's all coming up right after the break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is mid-afternoon on Tuesday, January 31st, 2023, the fifth day of the Alex Murdoch murder trial. Judge Clifton Newman invites the state to call their next witness, and Prosecutor John Conrad calls Britt Dove to the stand. Like the previous witness, Dove is a stocky man. He sports close-cropped auburn brown hair and wears a dark gray suit, a white button-down dress shirt, and a purple tie. Conrad begins by asking the witness some biographical questions. Lieutenant Dove, where are you currently employed, sir? For the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, known as SLED, and the Computer Crime Center. What's your rank? I am a lieutenant in the unit. Uh, So you're in a supervisory capacity over the Computer Crimes Unit? Yes, sir, I am. How long have you worked at SLED? I began my career at SLED in June of 2008. Did you have... Law enforcement experience prior to working at SLED? Yes, sir, I did. I began my law enforcement career in December of 1999 with the West Columbia Police Department. I served as a patrol officer and a school resource officer with them. I also served was with the Richland County Sheriff's Department for several years as a resource officer. And then I came back to West Columbia as an investigator handling family violence, elder abuse, child abuse, sexual assault investigations before coming to SLED. And since you've been in SLED, I believe you, did you just say it was 2008 when you started SLED? Yes, sir. What have you, what uh, roles have you filled at SLED since 2008? When I began at SLED, I began as the undercover chat specialist dealing with internet crimes against children and also doing digital forensics, whether it be computers, cell phones, tablets, at the time, GPS systems. From there, I moved into the role of working with file-to-file trading of uh, child pornography and dealt with that. And then from there, I moved into the role of doing general investigations while continuing to do digital forensics before I became a supervisor. All right. And you're a supervisor of uh, computer crimes, is that correct? Yes, sir, I am. And just briefly, what exactly does computer crimes do with SLED? Computer crimes at SLED they do several things. One, when local agencies submit digital evidence to us, whether it be a laptop, a tower, tablet, DVR, cell phone, um, servers, we will go and try to extract the information to look for anything that's relevant to the investigation. We also do handle some investigations 
We also do internet and other kind of investigations along with doing intrusion investigations on servers and ransomware. Okay. Now you've talked a little bit about computer and phone forensics, and that's something you have experience in, is that correct? Yes, sir. Give the jury a brief description, and, and we'll get into more details later as we go through some of the evidence, but what is computer forensics and what is phone forensics, and how are they different? Computer forensics, when we receive a computer, whether it be a laptop or a tower, it's going to be treated the same way. We're going to attempt to remove the hard drive from it, connect the hard drive to a physical write blocker, which is a piece of hardware that we connect it to. We also use a software write blocker. That way we can extract the information and get a bit-by-bit -bit forensic copy of all the addressable area on the drive. And then that way, that's what we work off of, is that copy, so that we can then do not disturb the original evidence when we're looking to see what's on there. Cell phone forensics are a little bit different. You can't remove necessarily, especially with the newer ones, you can't go and remove a hard drive from the cell phone. So many times what we have to do is connect the cell phone to hardware devices, whether it be Celebrite, Graykey, Axiom, or one of the other ones out there. Once we connect it, then we will extract the information from that and then work off that information that's extracted from that in order to do the examinations. All right. And if you had training uh, over the years in computer and phone physics? Yes, sir, I have. Right. Can you briefly describe to the jury some of the training you've had? I am currently a certified Celebrite operator. I'm a Celebrite certified physical analyst. I'm certified in advanced smartphone analyst with Celebrite. I'm certified with, used to be black bag, mobilized operator. I'm certified as a black light examiner, and I've also received certification for Axon, investigative certified operator and examiner. I'm currently a member of the Secret Service Task Force. I'm also a member of the FBI Cyber Working Task Force and also the FBI InfraGuard, along with the South Carolina Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. I've received training from Celebrite to receive these certifications and been tested on those. I've also received training with the National White Collar Crime Center for basic data recovery and acquisition, identifying and seizing electronic evidence, encryption, metadata and EXIF tags, electronic law enforcement seminars, basic computer skills for law enforcement, network intrusion response program, introduction to cell phone investigations, virtual currency, blockchain tracing and cryptocurrency anti-money laundering, and the future of preserving digital evidence. I've also attended the National Computer Forensic Institute with the Secret Service and received training in the basic computer evidence recovery, basic network investigative training, point of sale training, advanced forensics training, network intrusion response program, digital evidence investigations, MAC forensics training, for the next minute and a half, Lieutenant Dove continues to list his training and credentials that qualify him as an expert in cell phone forensics. When Prosecutor Conrad feels that the witness has sufficiently asserted his qualifications, he moves on to ask Britt Dove, Have you been qualified as an expert in court before? Yes, sir, I have. In what areas? I've been qualified as a computer forensic expert and also as a cell phone forensic expert. All right. Approximately how many times have you been qualified? Six times total. All right. Your Honor, at this time, the state would seek to introduce Lieutenant Dove as an expert in phone, cell phone forensics. Qualified as an expert in the field of cell phone forensics. You may proceed. Thank you. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Having qualified the witness as an expert in cell phone forensics, Prosecutor Conrad begins to ask Lieutenant Dove about his investigations related to the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. All right, Lieutenant Dove, a few minutes ago you briefly kind of discussed uh, the process of extracting data from cell phones, is that correct? Yes, sir, I did. Let's, let's get into a little more detail of that process. First of all, when you receive a cell phone in a locked state, are you able to access the files on that phone? No, sir. We're not able to access all the files on there. Why is that? Because with modern cell phones, when they are in a locked state, the files are encrypted on there. They usually use 256-bit encryption, and they're based with the Apple phone, for instance. They're based at a file-level encryption so that you are not able to pull the file out and look at it until you decrypt it or unlock the file. Once the phone is unlocked, you're then able to access the data, correct? Yes, sir, we are. What's a phone extraction? A phone extraction would be us retrieving as much information, user information, off of that phone as possible. And then once we take that information, it's put into, dependent on the software, a lot of times it's put into a zip file. And then we'll process that zip file with another piece of software to go through and decode and look at the information. And what kinds of information can you get from a phone via an extraction? There are several different types of extractions. One is an advanced logical extraction, which is kind of the surface level, what you would see on your phone if you looked at it. Then you have full file system extractions that go deeper, which will get hidden files that you may not see, like databases in there that are running in the background, which you won't see, but yet it contains information. And then the ultimate is a physical extraction. Now, physical extraction involves things whether you're going to root a phone or you're going to jailbreak a phone. And what that means is, basically, I'm going in and removing all security features from your phone so that now it's wide open and something could happen to it, which we don't practice rooting or jailbreaking phones because it is a huge security risk for the end. And I think you kind of mentioned this, but there, there are different types of phone extractions, correct? Yes, sir, there is. Name a few of them. There's the advanced logical extraction, like I described, it's just kind of the surface level that you go through is what you see on your phone. If you look at it, you see the text messages, call logs, pictures, things like that. Then you have the file system, which are going to get you databases in there. They're going to get you things that you're not seeing, along with the surface level. And then, of course, you have the physical, which ultimately gives you programming ability to the phone. So there's three general categories or types of extractions. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And imagine uh, in doing this in your computer lab, uh, you have access to multiple types of software to help you extract and process this uh, data off these phones. Is that correct? Yes, sir, we do. What's some of the software you use to uh, help you with these phones? Some of the software we use, we'll use Celebrite, whether it's their UFED Touch, which is a hardware device to extract information. They have a 4PC version, which is it sits on your laptop or your computer. We'll use that to extract. There's also Axon by Magnet Forensics that we'll use to extract stuff, too. And then Celebrite also offers several other things. The one we'll use a lot is GrayKey, which we use to extract information from iOS devices. 
or from Android devices. And how do you decide what software to use on what device? It really depends on what we're looking for and the state of the device when we receive it. If we receive a phone that we have a passcode to that's they're just looking for call logs and pictures, the investigator. Sometimes we'll just use Cellbrite or PC or physical analyzer, and we'll just do advanced logical extraction for them. Most of the time, though, we always try to get a full file system because there's additional stuff we can see and look at besides just that surface level stuff. So if it's an iOS and Android, sometimes we'll use GrayKey. If it's a, one of the other ones, sometimes we'll reach out to the Secret Service if we're not able to and use Cellbrite Premium. Uh, and we'll talk in more detail about each phone later, but uh, in terms of your testimony today, we're going to focus on three different phones, and that's Maggie's, Alex's, and Paul's. And you've been able to process all those phones in your lab, is that correct? Yes, sir, I was. Prosecutor Conrad next asks Lieutenant Dove to explain his analysis of each of the phones specifically. For Maggie's phone, what types of software did you have you did you use to process her phone? For Maggie's phone, I used several different softwares. I did the extraction with GrayKey in order to get the full file system. Like I described, that way it gets more of the databases, more of the surface level stuff. From that, I used Cellbrite Physical Analyzer to go in and do the decoding and to analyze and look at the phone and the information on there. I also used Axon by Magnet Forensics. I used their tool to help validate what I was seeing with the Celebrite stuff. And, and why do you use the three different types of software in this? Why did you use three different types of software on Maggie's phone? GrayKey is primarily just an extraction device. Okay. It's a piece of hardware like a box that you would connect to, and it helps extract the information. It doesn't do any of the decoding or any of the analyzing of it. I use Celebrite Physical Analyzer to go through to decode and do the analyzing. What I was finding on that, I want to validate that what I was seeing was being decoded properly and was right, so I ran through a separate piece of software so that I could see, and if it's getting the same information, then I know that both are decoding properly. So, for example, if you find a particular text or photo uh, that has a certain timestamp on using Cellbrite, you want to check on Axiom to see if it has the same timestamp. Is that something you'd, be look, at, you'd look for? Yes, sir. Correct. And what would that tell you if you saw they had the same timestamp? If it told me had the same thing, they would have validated each other, that both were working properly and decoding the information properly. All right. And you received a phone that you identified as Alex's phone. Is that correct? Yes, sir, I did. And we'll get into the details of you receiving it a little later. What pieces of software did you use to analyze Alex's phone? Alex's phone, I used GrayKey to do the full file system extraction. At first, I didn't have the password for that phone, and then I was able to obtain that password. So I used it to the full file system, and then I ran it through Celebrate Physical Analyzer, and then turned around and used Axon to validate my results to make sure they were decoding properly. And Paul's phone, which you had a, you've had an opportunity to process as well, correct? When I received Paul's phone, it had a locked passcode that I was not able to bypass with um, GrayKey. At the time, the software version that was running on the phone, the model of phone, it would not get a full file system and would not obtain the passcode. So I reached out to the Secret Service because they had additional resources to see if we could use their resources to obtain the passcode and the extraction. And ultimately that was successful, correct? Yes, sir, it was. And that was uh, uh, John Van Outen with the Secret Service? Yes, sir. That was my point of contact. That's who I took the phone to and signed over to. And then I received the phone back along with the hard drive containing the extraction he performed. Circling back to Maggie and Alex's phone, you provided passcodes for those two phones, is that correct? 
Originally, I was provided a passcode for Maggie's phone. For Alex's phone, I received two phones at the same time on that case or within a day or two apart. One was from him, had a passcode. The other one did not have a passcode with it. But I attempted, because we were creatures of habit, to use the same passcode on both, and it worked. You've already referenced this, but let's let's go back and talk about the kinds of information you pull off these phones. And there's user-accessible information that would normally be accessible by a user of the phone, correct? Yes, sir. Run through real quick again. What are some examples of that type of information? That would be call logs, voicemails, photos. Uh, if you wanted to pull up and see things you had saved, like your alarms, alarms that you had on your clock setting, if you'd set any of those, those kind of things you would see on there. In a nutshell, that kind of information, if you just opened up the phone itself, that, that's kind of the information you could go and see for yourself if you just went through the phone, correct? Yes, sir. But there's other types of information on a phone as well. Yes, sir, there is. And that's information that a simple user can't necessarily access. Is that correct? Yes, sir, that's correct. Tell us more about the, that information. First of all, where is it stored, how is it stored, and how is it accessed by your uh, in your lab. Phones use many times SQLite databases to store information. They will go in and inside the SQLite databases are things we're able to obtain by doing the full file system extraction. And things you may see in that from a big one's called Knowledge C database. You can see if the phone has been turned, if it's in portrait mode straight up and down, or it's been turned to vertical and landscape mode. You can see if the power goes out on the phone from the power log database and what kind of battery percentage you may have. It also will have things in an encrypted database. It'll have geolocation stuff and GPS stuff. It'll contain things like Bluetooth connections, where you can see if your phone connected to a Bluetooth device previously and when was the last time it connected to it. And those are some of the things you can find in the different databases. All right. We just use a few words there. Uh, first of all, I think you said SQLite. Right. Yes, sir. What, what is that and what does that mean? SQLite database is a database that's contained, the best way to think of it is think of just one solid file. All the information is contained inside that file. That file will go through and once it fills up, it will delete out the oldest stuff and, and keep the newest stuff. If you think about your phones, you use your phones a lot. Usually what's going to start filling up on your phones are photos, videos, music, apps, when you put those on there, those kind of things. And you'll start losing size on your phone. Well, the SQLite database, because it's a file, it's not going to continuously grow and eat into all of that space. It's going to t take up a certain amount to begin with because it's an operating system, but it stays within that contained file. And that's where the information is. And it's also set up by tables, too. So you would have to go in and look at the different tables to be able to interpret the information. Uh, now, those types of databases, I think you just said, they're typically self-contained. Yes, sir. They don't just keep writing to cover the entire phone memory, do they? No, sir. If you had a SQLite database like Knowledge C, for example, it's not. if you just continuously took your phone and went and changed the orientation of it or... You went and started doing things like plugging it into an outlet to charge up or unplugging it, doing different things like that. It's not going to eat up all your memory in the phone. Your memory is going to be mainly eaten up usually by photos, videos, apps that you download, things like that. Um, is there a shelf life of this type of database information on a phone? Does it, does it override itself after a period of time? Yes, sir, it does. Okay. And just generally speaking, how often is that type of, of uh, database stored on a phone? How long is this for, I should say? It depends. Um, depends on how much you're using that database. Some databases will do, it may have write information if you're using a lot within two days, if it's a location, like in a, uh, 
encrypted uh, cache database, it may hold it for 45 days. It's just going to depend how much because it because it's self-contained, it needs that room. So it's always the newest in, the oldest out on that database, and it goes through constantly doing that. So it depends. It really depends on how much you're using that database. Whether you may see something that's 45 days old in there, or you may see something that's two days old or two weeks old. All right. And you mentioned the Knowledge C database. Is that a type of SQLite database? Yes, sir. It is. And what are the, some of the things you, you would you would expect to find in a Knowledge C database? Many times in the Knowledge C database, you'll see different things where you may see orientation changes. You may see if somebody pushes a button on their phone, like a power button, or it used to be a home button in the older model of iPhones. You can see different things like that. You can also see things that it will also will talk with the PowerLog database where it'll show you the percent of battery life you have left. If you plug it in, you start charging it. It'll go through and look at all those kind of different things to see, or just a few of the things it'll look at. All right, and you mentioned location storage, and that's a type of Knowledge C database, correct? Yes, sir. All right, so uh, it's not unlimited storage for location points on the phone, correct? Well, let me correct that. Actually, Knowledge C, um, you have all separate databases that do location. Okay. You have the cache database, you have the cache encrypted database, or just name a few that will say location information. Mm -hmm. And so phones, depending on how the user has their settings, will store location data, correct? Yes, sir. A user can make a selection on their phones whether they want to always give out their location only while using an app or never. It's the setting that a user gets to choose if they want or what it's, the, it's by default. Sorry. And what are the different types of location data that a phone can store? A phone can store many things. It can store cell towers that it's seen, um, depending on the database it comes out of, if it's the encrypted cache database. A lot of times it'll tell you what networks it's seen, but will not tell you the exact date and time that it has seen those networks. It, but it will tell you it's, at some point in its life it's seen this network at this location. You have the cache database, many times it'll go through and that'll be pulling GPS information. Um, you'll have also databases that'll pull cell phone tower information if it's available. And just, again, generally speaking, would GPS location information be more accurate than something like a cell phone tower location information? Yes, sir, it would be. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join our next installment as we continue our look at the testimony of cell phone forensics expert, Britt Dove. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. 
It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.